Welcome to Arbel Ministries podcast with Mark Whitehead. We're looking at Numbers chapter 1 today. The book of Numbers begins with the Israelites being camped at the base of Mount Sinai. It's been 14 months since the exodus from Egypt, so they already they have already received the laws, they have already constructed the the portable tabernacle. Um, They've even been instructed how to worship this holy God. That's the book of Leviticus. So at this point, they've been camped out at the base of Mount Sinai for for almost a year. Now it's time for travel. So look with me, Numbers 1.1. It says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first of the second month, in the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So first off, the Lord spoke to Moses. The book of Numbers, we see this term, uh, the Hebrew word, weadabir, is used 61 times. That's, that's translated spoke in our Bible. It's a central element in everything we will learn during our time together in the book of Numbers. It's this idea of God speaking to his people, and it's so important for us to understand. If you're married, you know how important communication is in any relationship. And it's absolutely true with our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And that is what the book of Numbers is all about. It's, it's about God's people learning to hear his voice. So it says in that first verse that he spoke, first off, it says, in the wilderness in Sinai, in the desert. If you open a Hebrew Bible, it doesn't say the book of Numbers. The book's name in Hebrew is Bar, which means in the desert. It's the fifth word in Hebrew of Numbers. And that is the theme of the book. It's them in the desert with God. So the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. So what did he instruct Moses to do? Well, if you look, it says, verse 2, take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families by their father's households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. So he was supposed to take a census of the entire Israelite community by their clans and families. So a question, why why do you think God wanted Moses to take this census? Well, the Israelites were about to, to become this mobile war camp as they traveled to the promised land. In, in ancient times, and we see this outside the Bible as well, we see it just in ancient times in the Middle East, there are really only two reasons for a census. The first reason was war. Counting your troops, counting how many people that you have to fight. But the second reason was taxes. So if someone took a census, you could be assured that either a war was going to follow or taxes would be increased. Do you remember 
the first time a census was taken in the Bible. Back in Exodus 30, God called Moses to take a census. He says, here's what it says in Exodus 30. Each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you count them. That's Exodus 30, verse 12. And he goes on to say that it will be a half shekel for every person 20 years old and older. Now, here's the question. Why did they have to pay this money? I mean, the text says it was a ransom for his life, and it was to avoid a plague. You understand a census always meant something bad was going to follow, always. So even outside the Bible, other cultures, we read about this in in Egyptian records and other records, the idea of paying this sacred payment could avoid this potential disaster when a census was taken. So other records from the ancient Near East show that, that they offered this ransom to, to the gods for protection, saying, God's whatever the God is, please spare us. I know we're taking a census. I know we're counting this. And I know that bad things always follow. So I give a ransom for you. So please take this into consideration. So understand, there's a reason why we see in other books of the Bible, you know, in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21, we see David take a census. And even in 1 Chronicles, it says that Satan led him to take that census. And if you don't understand that a census in their mind always meant bad things were going to follow, then you won't understand this concept of fear when a census is taken in their culture. So what did they do with the money that was collected in Exodus 30? What happened with that half-shekel temple tax, excuse me, half-shekel tax that they all uh, were, were to collect? Well, the money went towards building the tabernacle, actually. And understand this. It was a one-time thing. This was a one-time payment in context. But, but it became a debate over the centuries. Should this become a yearly thing that all of Israel has to continually pay. And as we reach the life of Jesus, we find a debate about this is happening over 1,500 years later. Should we pay this temple tax yearly as upkeep of the temple? In Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27, we see this story play out where they're in Capernaum and, and a, a tax collector asked Peter, does your rabbi not pay temple tax? Well, the reason why that question is even being asked is that there's this big debate where some people paid it, and some people said, no, that was supposed to be a one-time payment years ago. So, so that was a huge, huge debate. And in the story, yes, Jesus ended up paying that temple tax, but it was widely Debated, 1947, you have a a little Bedouin shepherd boy, southern Israel, and he's going along looking for his goats, and he's he's just like shepherds do. His little boy's throwing rocks to try to guide them. 
not at the not at the goats, but uh, to try to steer them the right way. And all of a sudden, he hears this loud uh, noise, like pottery being broken, as he threw the rock. The next day, he got his father, and he went over and found out, wow, Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the beginning of what we found of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. And we see from these Dead Sea Scrolls, this community that withdrew in the desert just before the time of Jesus were completely against paying that temple tax. Why? They said specifically Exodus 30, what they based temple tax on was a one-time ransom payment to avoid a plague at the census. So they said, no, this not, should not be a yearly law that we pay. Let's go back to our text in Numbers 1. So the, the, the purpose behind the census was not for taxation in Numbers 1. It was to get ready for military action. They're about to go on a campaign and leave Mount Sinai. So God instructed the head of each family to be an assistant in the census. Verses 5 through 15, you see all these different families represented. But there's one glaring omission. The tribe of Levi. The Levi. See, the tribe of Levi is not represented. Every other tribe is. We get to uh, verses 17 through 19, and, and Moses and Aaron, they call the whole community together. And in verses 20 to 43, um, we see the, the number of men 20 years old and older based on each tribe. But here is something that we need to consider. As we continue through Numbers uh, 1, in verse 46, it gives us the grand total of the number of people. And listen to what it says. So all the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's households from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war in Israel, even all the numbered men were 603,550. This has been a huge debate with scholars for centuries. So why was there a problem? Well, let's talk about that number because that is a huge number. The first issue we need to deal with is if there were 603,550 males who were 20 years and older, not counting the Levites, the total population would have had to have been at least between 2 and 3 million people. So why is that a problem? Understand, this story is set in a specific context. It has a setting. And if you go to the southern parts of Israel, where these stories happened and where they're migrating in the book of Numbers, much of the ancient roads are these narrow wadis where you would have to go single file in these wadis. That's a problem. Three million people in single file in that area. They never covered more than about a hundred square miles. That's an issue. In addition, 
if they were all gathered together, as it says in verses 17 through 19, this many people, three million people or so, would occupy at least three to five square miles. And that's if they were all packed together tightly. So can you imagine this problem of communicating with the entire assembly of Israel, as it says in Exodus 16.6 or in Numbers 17.6, if there's that many people to communicate with? And by the way, Exodus 1 tells us, Exodus 1.15, there are only two midwives. Two midwives serving the whole population in Goshen. And I thought my job was busy. I mean, if they had that many people, how on earth could they keep up? So that's the first issue we have to wrestle with. The second issue is that we see a total of 22,273 firstborn males. We see that in Numbers 13. Number, excuse me, Numbers 3, verse 43. So, so think about this. The total number, if these were firstborn males, the total number of family units would have been the same number, 22,273. So given the total number of males ages 20 and up that we see in Numbers 146, the average mother would have had to have more than 30 boys. That doesn't even include the number of girls that she would have had. In in the whole records of all the the genealogical records in the Bible, the average family had 2.5 males per household. The largest number listed in the entire Old Testament that was born to a single male is 12. It's Jacob. And they were through multiple wives and concubines. So this number is absolutely incredibly large and is really outside the scope of what we see in the rest of the Bible as far as the number of kids that each family would have had to have. One more problem that I want to mention with these large numbers, and then we'll get to some of the solutions that are possible. In Deuteronomy 7.1, God says that there were seven nations, it says, larger and stronger than Israel that he would drive out. So if Israel had 2 million people at the time, let's just say 2 million, go on the low end, this would mean that the population of Canaan would have had to have been at least 15 to 20 million people. Do you know how many people live in Israel today? Today there are 8.7 million as, as this recording is being recorded. Back in 1960, there was only about 2 million people who lived in Israel. And all of the archaeology in Israel today points to the fact that there would have been less than a million people total in Canaan at the time Israel invaded at that time period. So if there were seven nations who were larger and stronger, that poses a big problem with the total number of people given. Now understand, I I want you to hear these things. We have people that want to poke holes in the Bible. And we need to understand things that they're likely to bring out so that we know how to respond to that. So what's the answer? What's the answer to these issues? Well, one approach is to say, well, God's Word says it, so I believe it. 
And absolutely, God is the God of miracles. I fully subscribe to the fact that God's word is God-breathed, 1 Timothy 3.16, that it's pure and flawless, that's Psalms 12.6, and that it's true, that's Proverbs 30, verse 5. However, we've got to consider the story in its setting. We often read scripture apart from its original location. I would invite you, come to Israel with me. Hike these wadis. Hike the same spot that that we know patriarchs hiked in, these ancient trails. And then imagine with me these single file lines on these narrow wadis. Let's read the story in its setting. Could it be that the original language and the original audience in the original location, holds the key in balancing out these difficulties. We tend to bring stories out of their context and try to wrestle with them with a Western mind. Let's get into the story in its location, in its original language, and I think we'll see some things. There have been many solutions offered to try to satisfy these huge numbers in in the story. And so let's talk about a few of them. Some have proposed that there's this purposeful exaggeration to bring God glory. Let me let me um, show you what I mean. See, God promises to make a nation through Abraham that would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens, Genesis 13, 6. Does that mean that literally that number of, of, of people... Or was God exaggerating for effect? Well, one scholar that kind of thinks in this manner, his name is R.B. Allen, he believes that the number, the numbers that we see in Numbers 1 are multiplied by a factor of 10. Now, I don't know if this is true, if, if, if that's the actual solution, but it would satisfy the number of children per, fa- per family perfectly. It would bring them down to the exact number that we would expect to see at that time period. Other scholars think that the numbers were more uh, rhetoric in nature. In in our Western mind, numbers are first and foremost about quantity. If I say that I have four kids, your mind goes to, oh, I I bet he really does have four kids. And it's true, I do. But understand to a Jewish mind, numbers are first and foremost about some sort of symbolic meaning. There's, there's deeper meaning than the literal number because everything to an Eastern mind is symbolic and has, has meaning. So some say that the numbers given in this, in this census weren't actually literal numbers. God's trying to make some sort of point. And, and maybe that's true. Now, I wanted to highlight one other proposed solution because the Hebrew word for thousand um, it is, can be translated in other ways. So, yes, it's translated thousand in the Bible, but there are other passages where it's actually translated as family or clan, the same Hebrew word. Elop, E-L-E-P. Now, why is that important? You understand Biblical hero Hebrew has about 7,000 words. 
contrast that with our English language. Today, to date, we have 171,476 words, and we see that in our 20-volume Oxford English Dictionary. So yes, this Hebrew word, elop, can mean thousand, but it also can be a military unit or a clan. So let's just say that it was a military unit or clan. Well, let's say, um, as we see uh, in, let's just take the sons of Reuben. It says in verse 21, their numbered men of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. This could also be translated 46 clans or military units of 500 people. So if you do that with all of the numbers that we see in Numbers 1 on the census, that would make the total number of males in the Israelite army just under 6,000. So there are proposed solutions to these large numbers. And God's word is infallible, but what if it's not really a thousand on each one? What if that's just how we translate it into our English language, and that wasn't what God meant? So as we discussed earlier, the Levites were not counted among the families that were to help with the census. They were not required to be a part of the military. Instead, they would be set apart for a special assignment from the Lord. And why? Well, the the rabbinic uh, Midrash teaches that God rewarded them because they remained loyal to God and did not participate in the worship of the golden calf in Exodus 32. So God says, you know what? Because that you remain loyal to me, I'm going to reward you, tribe of Levi. You're going to have a special assignment with my tabernacle, and you're not going to be a part of the military. So let's look at the Levites' duties. I think there are some things that we can really learn here. And I want us to finish this this Numbers 1 with these thoughts in our mind. Verse 47, The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it. They shall also camp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is to set out, the the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall shall set it up. But the laymen who come near shall be put to death. The sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp, and each man by his own standard according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there will be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus the sons of Israel did according to all which the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. One of my fascinations with this Torah, with the first five books of the Old Testament especially, has always involved the role of the the priests and the roles of the Levites. See, all priests were Levites. 
but not all Levites were priests. So for those Levites who were not priests, they were given duties in the tabernacle. What an amazing honor it must have been to be in the lineage in which you were the one who handled holy things and you were the one who took care of God's house, the place where his presence dwelt. So let's look at the Levites' duties that we see listed in Numbers 1. The first thing is, the Levites were to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. Can you imagine? My job, or your job, is to carry God's house so that His people, when we get to where we're going, have a place to worship God. Well, that was one of the Levites' job descriptions. And they literally carried the tabernacle to the place in which God led them to. And maybe you've never thought about this, but how often do you think they moved camp? We probably think, oh man, I mean, God probably just picked them up after three or four days in one spot and went to another. No. If you look at the story, maybe one time a year tops. So once every year or so, maybe a little bit less, is how often they would have to move the tabernacle. So that was their first job to carry the tabernacle and its furnishings. The second job for the Levites, it says in the scripture, is they were to take care of the tabernacle. And, and when the text says take care, that Hebrew word, sharath, it literally means to provide specialized service which can only be performed by someone qualified. See, you have to be a Levite to take care of the tabernacle. They were specialized in taking care of God's house, essentially. If you want to, if you want to Levite, you can't do that. So that was their second duty. The third duty, the Levites were to camp around the tabernacle, it says. They had to literally sleep around the tabernacle. They, they were the protection. Why? Well, if something happened to the tabernacle, God says his wrath would come down on his people. Look at verse 53 again. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there will be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. The Levites were their buffer that allowed them to be safe. That was their job. And lastly, the fourth thing we see that the Levites were supposed to do is they were to keep charge of the tabernacle of testimony. In Hebrew, it's actually two words. We, we say keep charge. They're two separate words. One of those words means to actively watch. Like, like if someone's in a watchtower looking down and actively every second of every day watching and watching and never taking a break. That's what that word means. And the other word here is to actively guard it. So if someone's attacking or someone's coming or you're seeing someone in danger because they're getting too close, it's to do whatever you have to do to keep them away. So that, that's this, this charge of the Levites is their duty was to provide any measure necessarily, any measure necessary while protecting God's tabernacle where he dwelt, dwells. Now here's the thing. As we roll this into the New Testament, 
Understand that the Levitical priesthood was never intended to be something that was permanent. That's Hebrews 7.11. So when Jesus died on the cross, the temple veil was torn, and it says, Hebrews 4.14, that Jesus became our high priest. The old system of the Levites and these people having these duties with the tabernacle, that system is completely gone. And all of a sudden, we have a role if we're a believer in Jesus Christ. First Peter talks about it. First Peter 2.5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9 of the same chapter, 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into marvelous light. See, Jesus says, if you're a believer in him, now we are his priests. Just as the Levites had a role to play in God's story, so do we as his priests. So let's look at that lens of what the Levites' duty was back then. And if we're now his priests, what that means for us today. And we see that all throughout the New Testament. We see these same elements being talked about. So the Levites, we said the first point was they were to carry the tabernacle, and all its furnishings. You understand, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we are to carry the tabernacle. See, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body. Your body is now the tabernacle. And and we have to realize that our duty is to carry him where he leads. Just like he led Israel in the desert, they weren't wandering, he led them. If you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, your job is to hear his voice. And wherever he leads you, even if it's in the desert and it looks barren and it looks awful, your job is to go where he tells you to go, carry the tabernacle. The second job of the Levites, where they were to take care of the tabernacle. When Jesus made his home in our body, if we're believers, our job is to take care of his tabernacle. He lives in us. That means his bo- this body that we're in is his, not ours. So we have to take care of our temple. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So on top of that, remember what it meant to take care of his tabernacle. We talked about that, that word sharath in Hebrew. It means providing the specialized service which can only be performed by someone qualified. Here's my question. 
Are you constantly pursuing Jesus in a way that you are able to perform special services on his behalf because you are equipped to do so? If you are not in his word, if you are not allowing him to mold you and shape you regularly, how on earth are you going to be equipped and ready to act when he says act? You have a duty to take care of your temple. Yes, that means we should probably eat better. That means we might need to exercise and and take care of our bodies. That's exactly true. But don't neglect the spiritual equipping that this is talking about. If God has given you a specialized mission, and he has, he has given every believer specialized missions. It's not just pastors. It's not just missionaries. It is every believer in Jesus Christ. Your job is to be equipped. The only way that happens is spending time with him so that he is able to equip you. So that was the second part of a Levite's duty. Third part, the Levites were to camp around the tabernacle. And I can't get away from this thought that we are to camp around the Spirit of God within his tabernacle. You can have the Holy Spirit in you and be completely... um, not listening to his voice, right? My constant prayer for years has been that I would be so sensitive to God's spirit that's within me that all he would have to do is whisper for me to hear his voice. But just understand, just like the Levites, our obedience to camp around his spirit, listening to his voice, has implications to those around us. Just go back and what happened if somebody came around the temp, the tabernacle that was not a Levite? We talked about how God's wrath came down on them. So it was the Levite's duty to protect them, to be that buffer. Do you understand in the very same way, if you are not being obedient in, in, in spending time with him, listening to his voice, listening to his spirit, camping out with the spirit of God in you, and then following what he tells you to do, needs will not be met around us. And others will not come to know him. Example will not be given for future generations to follow. In short, there will be consequences, not just for you, but for those that God has put in your path. Your mission Your priestly mission is to camp out with his spirit. His wrath will be brought on others because of our disobedience. We have a duty, just like the Levites, to camp out with his spirit in our hearts. The last Levite duty in Numbers that we're seeing is they were to keep charge of the tabernacle of testimony. We are to actively watch our hearts and protect our hearts. We are to keep charge of our tabernacle. Look at Proverbs 4.23 says this, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. See, for believers, since he has made his residence in our heart, we must constantly be on guard and not allow evil to enter. We have a duty to keep charge of our heart. 
And you may be listening to this podcast and be convicted that you're letting things into your heart right now. You're letting things into the residence of God himself that don't deserve to be in his presence. Understand your job, just like the Levites, is to keep charge of your tabernacle. And we said earlier, that means actively watch as a watchman every second of every day. That also means to guard it. Any measure necessary. Your heart is important. God says, I want to dwell in you. You are my temple. You are my tabernacle. But listen, guys, we must keep charge of the tabernacle. Now we see at the very end of Numbers 1, it says in verse 54, Thus the sons of Israel did according to all which the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. They were faithful to fulfill their duties. That was the mark of the Israelites for the first nine and a half chapters of Numbers. So as we unpack some of the beginning of Numbers together, understand they got it right. They were obedient. But it didn't last. And we'll get into that. So here's my question as we finish. Will you be faithful to fulfill your duties. If God says, you are now my priest, and, and I want you to keep these same charges, I want you to carry me around wherever I lead you, you need to go. Um, I want you to take care of my tabernacle. I want you to, to, to take care and with your specialized service, do what I tell you to do. I want you to camp around my spirit. I want you to keep charge of the tabernacle. Protect it. Watch it. Are you being faithful? with what he's called you to do. I want to thank you for listening to our Numbers 1 podcast. I look forward uh, to our time together in Numbers 2. Numbers 2.